We're working through 1 John, walking in the light. And the topic this morning is a living grace for the long journey of life. A living grace for the long journey of life. And we're looking at 1 John chapter 2, uh, just three verses, 12, 13, and 14 that we're going to be studying. So get a Bible, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now he starts again. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. I think we're meant to see the, the link between the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So they weren't just lucky. There's a way in which they overcame the, the evil one. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. These verses, I think, mark a little bit of a transition in John's letter to these dear Christians. He's, if you, if you backed up just a bit, he's dealing with, he had been dealing with a, a kind of, a kind of phoniness that can creep into a Christian life. Two times he talks about if we, if we say we abide in the light, if we say we walk with him. In other words, there can come a, a profession that is uh, a little bit delusional in terms of the actual commitment. The words can exceed the walk. And then the, the, the last thing we looked at is John picks up a particular way in which our words and our actions can, can be at polar opposites. If, if a phoniness, uh, that might be too strong. And, an inauthenticness can creep into my Christian walk so that what I profess is greater than what I'm actually living. What is the greatest danger? What causes that? And John picked one thing. He, he said, it's in that ninth verse, whoever says he is in the light says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother. So the, one of the primary ways in which my profession can exceed my actual walk is I, I can, I can, magnify my love for God and minimize the importance of my love for God's children, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. So the danger of the phoniness and one of the main sources of the phoniness, that's, that's what John has been sort of talking about. I think it's important to catch John's heart and John's motive. I mean, he writes so honestly, not because he doesn't love these people, but he writes so honestly because his love for these people is so deep. You, you, you really have to care about the souls of people to, to give these searching words the way John does. John's a very 
wise and a very thorough teacher. He, he wants to tell these people the truth, but he doesn't, he doesn't just want them hearing the truth with condemnation. He's not just beating them over the head. Even in his admonitions and warnings, he, he wants them to hear the word from a position of, like all of us, from a position of humility, tenderheartedness, honesty, and repentance. John knows, I think, how we all come to times when instead of hearing the Holy Spirit with repentance, we listen to our only to uh, just to our own thoughts with hopelessness and condemnation. You know, what's the use? I'm never going to be able to measure up. I've already broken half the commandments you've just been talking about. Now, that's where today's text comes into focus. There's a beautiful pastoral tone and balance in the verses we're going to be studying. I mean, John reminds them of their capacity to genuinely, openly, humbly hear his words, turn from their wicked ways, respond to divine mercy and help. They they can live the kind of life John's calling them to. That's the point of the words. They can have confidence. They can have assurance as they walk in the love and life of, of Jesus. It's not just trying to be the best people we can be, hoping we can qualify for heaven. No, it's not that. There's, there's grace here. There's, there's a, a life and a power that's at work inside their own skins. Sure, room for carefulness. Yes, there should be self-examination. No, they must never take their walk with Jesus lightly or glibly. It's not just a matter of what they say. It's not just talk. So yes, their faith has to move beyond just religious talk. John's not undoing anything that he's already said. But just as surely as he wants to take false assurance away from phony religious professors, he also wants to give assurance to all those who are laboring repentantly, humbly to lay hold of a walk with the Lord that's real and life-changing. Any true presentation of the Word of God always comes along these two lines together at the same time. I mean, A, the Word never comes just to soothe and stroke those who are careless. It, 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 it does warn. It does, at times, rebuke. It, it does convict. It does correct. So there's, there's a sharpness to the word that, that cuts through the smog and the fog and the mud of our compromised thinking. It's properly called the sword of the Spirit. But secondly, the word always comes with sweetness to a heart that's ready to receive it. The word is only hard to bear when it's resisted. So the psalmist said, hearing it humbly, receiving it, ingesting the word was like eating honey. That's what he said. You can taste and see that the Lord is good. Very, very good. It's the state of the heart that reveals how the word of the Lord lands on our lives. Let's look at how John breaks down these different groups and how they receive and are affected by the word of God. Point number one. 
It's fascinating the way he does this. First, he speaks to children in Christ. Primarily in 12 and 13, I want to look at this. I am writing to you, there it is, little children. Because, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he says again, I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. Like any good spiritual father, John starts with the children. 13, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. 13, again, I write to you children because you know the father. So the first one was 12, the second one was 13. There is, but there is something precious in these words. John sees, John sees a great need to start by talking about the only real way to begin life in Jesus. Everyone has to start at the beginning. You, you have to be rooted and settled on this issue of forgiveness. I'm writing to you children, verse 12, because your sins are forgiven. I, I, will, I will grow up spiritually lame unless I have my birth in anchored in divine mercy and pardon and forgiveness. I won't think right about anything else if this is skipped over. There will be no peace with God. There will be no confidence in prayer. There'll be no ongoing joy apart from entering at the children's gate. Forgiveness. Let's just say right off the bat, the Christian is not someone who is trying to earn God's forgiveness. The Christian is not someone who is hoping one day he will be forgiven or that somehow he will qualify for kingdom status. No, no. When John writes to these little children, he talks about their first experiences in Christ and, and right off the bat, he lays the right foundation. Never, never, ever forget that your sins are forgiven. Oh, don't carry a suitcase of guilt through life. Jesus brings unbelievable mercy. We have been righteous. That's the literal meaning of justification. Happened through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me, let me just labor this for a minute more. I think there are enemies to the experience of forgiveness in our lives. A, I can lose sight of the magnificence and the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, John writes in words that confront the contemporary church's kind of therapeutic pursuit of spiritual holiness. Self-help can be more in than the cross at times. John will have none of it. Look at that 12th verse. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I can, I can believe in the cross and still lose sight of the cross. 
So the Christians called upon to constantly emphasize the cross in Jesus Christ for his name's sake. It's not just trying to be moral. It's not just self-improvement. It's not just trying to keep a list of rules. Jesus calls the church just specifically to collect herself regularly with nothing else on her agenda except to take the time to relive. We call it communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Relive the centrality of his crucifixion over and over again. But there's another way we can shut out the experience of God's forgiveness in my heart. B, I can fail to extend forgiveness to others who have wronged me. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Jesus is the speaker here. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, what do you do with these words? Neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. I don't know what you do with those words. I've heard them softened many, many times in many different ways. In many evangelical churches, I talked about communion under the last, the last point. Many churches call coming to the Lord's table the communion service because it helps me remember that I can't receive forgiveness in solitaire. There's a necessary um, togetherness when we talk about forgiveness and receiving divine grace. Re- receiving grace and extending grace. Read 1 Corinthians 11. They seem to be just so tightly tied together. And so John writes to these little children or young children. That's where he starts. And he says, little children, there's only one way to be propelled forward in your life in Christ. Make sure you have truly begun in forgiveness. Point number two. Next, he speaks to mature fathers in the faith. So after the little children, he talks about fathers. He does that in First. John chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. I'm writing to you, now he says, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Look at it again in 14. I write to you, fathers, and then the very same words, because you know him who is from the beginning. Notice the wording about fathers. There, there's a mindset hinted at in the way John words his instructions. Because in each of the three groups addressed by John, the wording changes slightly as it's repeated. It's only in the case of fathers that it's repeated exactly in the same words, 13 and 14, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Children, 13, they have come to know him. Fathers, Know him who is from the beginning. Children, they've come to know him. Fathers, know him who is from the beginning. What's what's the difference? Is there a difference? I think there is. I think when John addresses the fathers, 
His emphasis is on those who have this longer history with God. He focuses on the passing of time. You've known him who is from the beginning. He, he seems to be thinking the mature in Christ, they've learned, they've learned more than anything else, the mature in Christ know how to frame the circumstances of the present, okay? And the unknown challenges of the future, they've learned to frame the present and the future in the context of lessons from God's presence and work in the past. There's a continuity that's being pictured. And there are great blessings in that approach. When he says, you fathers, you've known him who is from the beginning, I think, I think he means the mature don't make as many rash decisions. They don't rush their opinions about life and the work of God in their lives. Um, they don't panic with what is presently hard to explain. They've learned never to judge God by isolated events. They've gradually learned, because there's no other way to do it except gradually over time, they've gradually learned to see not just the present activity or apparent inactivity of God. They've learned to look at the path of God over time. I think there's a difference. I mean, when you're young, like children, especially little children, you do tend to see life constantly through the lens of the present. Little children, you tend to see things one event at a time. You really can't help do that. And if you isolate the events of life, if you have to have some pat answer for every single thing, if you need every answer instantly, well, you're going to have a hard time maturing in the Christian walk. You'll, you'll spend your whole childish life fueling misconceptions about God. It's true. All things work together for good. But that doesn't mean every individual thing that happens is good. It means there's a, there's a God, a wise, sovereign God. The fathers recognize this, who can take all the things and work them together for good when you, when you take them all together over the long haul. That's fathers. Big picture God. I think, I think without using John's terminology, this idea of the fathers who have known him who is from the beginning. I think the psalmist was, was describing that same kind of mental viewpoint when he said, Psalm 112, 7, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Same idea. Okay, point number three. Third, John speaks to the, the young who fight the enemy. I see it in that 13 and 14. I'm writing to you, young men. Now he picks a different group. Because you have overcome the evil one. So it's a different emphasis here. I write to you, here it is again, young men. Because you are, same thing, strong. The word of God abides in you. And then you have 
overcome. Notice two times, overcome here, overcome there. There's, there's this, there's this, uh, kind of like warfare wording, struggle, fight. Such a beautiful and important balance here. Little children, you're, you're forgiven. Fathers, you have known him who is from the beginning. But the young, young men and women, the Christian life isn't just enjoying forgiveness. And it isn't just resting in the character of God. There are apparently battles to be fought. So, so the deliverance from guilt in the past must lead to ongoing deliverance from the power of present sin, the influence of the enemy on all fronts in my life. How, how can I win those battles? Where does strength for the, the young and the strong, where does that strength come from? Well, it's not just willpower. The last part of 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And here it is. The word of God, there's the verb, abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So the Christian life isn't just believing the word. It isn't even just knowing the word. There's just a whole bunch of things to resist. There's much to overcome. That phrase, the word of God abides in you. Some translations actually say the word of God lives in you. I mean, that that captures it kind of brightly. It's not just that they've read the word. It's not just that they know the word. That's good, but they they use it. It it lives in them like like uh, electricity lives in a light bulb. Maybe the best way to explain those words is to the word of God lives in you, abides in you. Maybe the best way to understand that is to look at the opposite. We looked at these verses from 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, there's that profession thing again. We make him a liar, and look, his word is not in us. This is the opposite of his word abiding in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, his word is not in us. This, this isn't really the same thing as denying God's word. It doesn't even say they're neglecting to read God's word. It's something different. This is, this is what I don't do at a certain point when the word of God disagrees with my life about certain things. And what I don't do is embrace God's word instead of my viewpoint. So John's point is simple with these young men. Strength comes from allowing the word to live. His word, his word abides in you. That means it, it dominates. It, it really doesn't abide until it rules, until it arbitrates my thoughts, my motives. That's the battle. It's the battlefield of my life. This is where the devil must be overcome and my own inclinations have to be resisted, trumped by God's word. And John joyfully looks at these strong young men and women. They overcome. And why? Well, his word lives in you. 
It's not just on the paper. Obviously, John is, John is categorizing things in ways that you can't, you can't totally separate. We get that. John doesn't mean that children and fathers don't have to resist self. He doesn't mean they never have to overcome the devil. That's a big part of the Christian life for everyone. I get it. But John has a particular emphasis with, with his instruction to these young men and women. He says, he says the young, they have this urgent need. The young have this urgent need for this instruction about overcoming. And here I think is why. Let's just say young men, the way John does. Young men are those who are traditionally, even in our society, young men are those who are traditionally at their peak of power, influence, engagement in life. Young men, young women are the ones most likely to feel pinched for time. Demands crowd and compete for time and attention. In our day, both young men and young women are just at that point in life where things are starting to open up. They're just hitting their stride. They're making their mark. They're climbing to the top. That's what's going on in John's mind. There's this passion in his heart. He's now an old man. He's done with the rat race. He's one of those mature fathers in Christ but he still has a sharp memory and years of experience just burning inside. He knows about all the dangers of the different parts of the journey that the children need to know about forgiveness. And the young men and women who are trying to burn their candles at both ends, John would say to them, don't, don't blow it now. Don't get sidetracked just when you have the most potential and need to stay the most focused for Christ. Some things are more important than you're seeing them as being right now. And deepening your walk with Jesus, that's one of them. So, the children, forgiveness. Rejoice in forgiveness. That's how you start. The fathers, they've known him who is from the beginning. There's the tracing of the hand of God over time that keeps from making rash decisions. The young men and women, don't use your greatest potential and energy for secondary things. Here's where I want to wrap this up. I want to talk now about three particular dangers and one I think overlooked observation. You can be the judge of that. So three particular dangers and one overlooked observation. This is point number four. So first, the three dangers. So if I were summing all this up in a practical way, here's how I'd do it. A, to those who are young in faith, children, there can easily come those times when you think your past might be too dark to ever be fully erased. Children, you have to start. We all have to start the same way. We come to Jesus as we are, marred, bruised, sinful. We all come. You come with divorce. You come with abortion. You come with homosexuality. You come with hatred. You come bound by habit. 
And we will never get, of course, we won't get anywhere renaming these sins or treating them lightly. I don't mean that. John knows that too. But he seems to urge that we we do start out our Christian life with this high, high expectation of divine forgiveness. I write to you because your sins have been forgiven for the name of Christ. I said three dangers. Here's the second one. B, to those with many years, the fathers, many years of experience walking with Jesus. It's easy, I suppose, after many, many years of experience in the faith to think I'm at the end of my spiritual journey. I've done my bit. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. And it can be easy to confuse being solid and grounded in God with just retirement and sitting on the sidelines spiritually. I said there were three dangers. Here's the third. C, to those brimming with the strength and the fullness of life's opportunities and challenges, the young, young men and women. Oh man, it's so easy, John would say, to forget where the real battles lie. You can, you of all people can easily squeeze God out. Don't do it. Don't do it. Now, I said one overlooked observation. I found in all my old uh, on computer filed away articles, I found a thought tucked away in an article that was reflecting on St. John of the Cross in his famous Dark Night of the Soul. And it just struck me as fascinating. You can be the judge. The lesson is simple, and it works like this. He's talking about these words from 1 John, all right? As he writes the dark night of the soul, he's dealing with the very same text we're looking at, with the children, the fathers, and the young men. And the lesson works like this. John means for us to notice a distinct transition between these three levels. You can't separate them. We've already talked about that, but John means for us to Learn from each one as though you could separate them. The most striking transition, I think, is that between the children and the young men. As we would expect, the first stage of development, little children, it's marked by this glorious, joyful rush of divine grace and forgiveness. These children have made the biggest discovery of life. And it's wonderful. They have experienced the biggest transition. A transition John in his gospel talks, it's like being reborn. It's like starting all over. It's a big deal. And so this is a spiritual awakening with all the accompanying sense of freedom, joy. I, I, I don't mean I don't mean this in a, in a silly way, but this divine embrace of coming home to the Father. Now, without denying or belittling any of those things, in this article, "Dark Night of the Soul," the writer says that the Apostle John marks this striking transition as he moves into the second phase of spiritual development, spiritually young men and women. And this second phase is characterized by this growing awareness of a battle. 
You've overcome. A sense of opposition now, a, a pushback, a struggle against other things. I mean, I risk oversimplifying. Children don't fight battles. Young, strong people do. So, so just understand, this doesn't mean the faith is any less genuine or less precious for the young men than for the children. But here's what it might mean, this author was suggesting. It might mean that they have moved beyond the point where the word of God is merely received and treasured and enjoyed. And John seems to hint at this fact by the way he moves on in the young men to describe how the word of God isn't just received with joy, but it's kind of integrated. It abides in you, he says. We all know when we first come as little children, initially we're saved. The only, the only thing required of the little children is to just give joyful assent to the truth. And then the young men, they have to wield that sword in battle. It's, it's just different. It's not better or worse. It's just different. It's a huge transition. I think, I think it's important because it affects the way you perceive your spiritual standing. I mean, the same gracious presence of God can be sensed differently in different seasons of maturity. And I think it's important because I think great grief and confusion can result when John's words aren't thought through. That's my concern. In the early stages, God's presence is understandably measured almost exclusively by the extent to which his presence was sensed or felt. Joyfully receiving forgiveness. And I think God, like any good parent, accommodates that new life in spiritual children. And as long as they're just children, it's understandable that they may well just long for this sense of joyful presence, the divine hug. It's easy to desire that sometimes more than to desire purity and Christ-likeness. God starts with little children and he forgives. But what he wants to do after is he wants to shape and overcome and dominate. John is saying, here's how I would close. John is saying it may well be natural and understandable for the spiritual child to long to feel good spiritually. God is very gracious, especially with young children spiritually, but with all of us. Different ways, different times in our walk with him. But, but just as you expect your own children to know your love more deeply as they mature, so Father God expects his children as they mature to not only enjoy the forgiveness, but engage in his kingdom. And I think this is important because remembering this will help you through all those times when the word of God and prayer and worship, indeed, all your walk with him starts to feel different 
than it did when you were first saved. And you just might not be backsliding. It might be God's calling you to grow up. Little children, there's that rush, joyful forgiveness. Fathers who can trace back the spiritual journey and not make rash decisions. They see the hand of God. Young men and women caught up in the rush of life with the full strength that they have. And it isn't just about being forgiven. It's about overcoming in the power of Jesus and his word abiding in you. Join us tonight. Tonight we'll be back in our series, Soul Food. It's so important to know how the word of God makes its changes in our hearts. That's what we're studying now. We spent about seven weeks, how we got our Bible, and now how the word does its work, knowing how the word does its work in your heart. Jesus told the parable of the soils. The seed is the word, but it doesn't have the same fruitfulness in every heart. They all hear it but it doesn't affect them the same way. How, how do you hear the word in such a way that there's maximum fruitfulness in your life? That's what we're going to be looking at tonight at 6.30. God bless the church. Let's pray. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the way it touches and reaches into all the different seasons of our walk. It's all of grace but the grace manifests itself in different ways at different seasons. Teach us to walk in love, in trust. Let your word abide deeply in our hearts and rule our lives. Bless your church all day today. It's the Lord's day. Keep your place in our hearts and minds. Bless us as we regather online and treasure your word more tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Love one another, church. God bless you.